Hello and welcome to Wellbeing. I'm Dr Virginia Reid and today in the studio I have with me Dr Ben Ewald, GP and epidemiologist who's been studying for quite a long time the effects of air pollution on our health. Welcome Ben. Hi Virginia. Ben, the latest sort of work that you have been putting out has been specifically about coal-powered energy plants. Is that correct? Yeah, look, there's a range of health problems that we know affect people, you know, due to air pollution exposure. So when one of the environment groups sort of asked me if I could try to work out, you know, how big is the health problem coming out of the fine particles that that come out of the coal-fired power stations, that seemed like a very interesting challenge and a good sort of application for some epidemiology. And that is a good thing to specify particularly which particle you're going to study? The health effects that we found we could give good numbers for were the risk of developing new diabetes, the risk of having a baby that's under 2.5 kilos of weight, or the overall risk of dying from any cause. So those were the kind of health outcomes we could calculate out. And the particles are the particles in the fine size class called PM2.5. That's the smaller of the particles that are likely to be blown around in the air. And there's some very good science that's been done by people in Sydney working out how much of the fine particle pollution can be attributed to various sources, including the coal-fired power stations. So for people in Sydney... um, The power stations are off in the regions, so there's no power stations left within the Sydney area, but, you know, it's 100 kilometres north to the central coast or 80 kilometres west to Lithgow. But still, it turns out that particles are blowing back into Sydney from those places and forming a, you know, a sizable fraction of the particle pollution for the large number of people in Sydney. Of course, people on the central coast or in Newcastle or the Upper Hunter, which are closer to those power stations, they're getting you know, more of their air pollution is from those sources. Right, so it really depends on winds and... It depends on winds air speed and, and the, way, sorts the of way the particles are carried around right. and it depends on atmospheric chemistry because most of these particles are the secondary particles that form from sulphur dioxide in the atmosphere. The SO2 comes out of the power station as a gas. Mm, as a by-product in, of burning the coal It comes to from the sulphur the in the coal, mm-hmm. yep. Mm-hmm. It comes out of the power station as a gas and it forms into particles in the atmosphere. Mm. You knew, though, that those particles were important to health because there had been prior studies. That's right. That's right. A lot of big studies done in Europe and North America mm-hmm. and uh, some in Asia and elsewhere, mm-hmm. all pointing to the same kind of conclusion that these particles do have some serious health problems. The risk is small at the individual level, mm. but because everybody's exposed, it adds up to a big health burden across the whole population. Of course, unless you're one of those particular individuals. <laughs> That's right. If you're one of the people who gets these sort of bad outcomes, it's, it's bad for you. But yeah, yeah. Um, so it does. So what we found was that in summary, that there's 279 deaths per year attributable to the, the pollution from the power stations. Right. An extra 233 babies born underweight and about 360 people getting diabetes who wouldn't have otherwise got it from that power station fraction. Right. So these seem like you know large numbers, mm. and and the crazy thing is that that pollution can be captured at the power station. So this is entirely preventable. Ah. So so that's the the interesting part is that the New South Wales power stations they don't have the modern pollution control gear on them that power stations elsewhere have. So anywhere in America or Europe or Asia, or Japan. Uh, 
power stations are required to have sulfur dioxide scrubbers or nitrogen dioxide capture mechanisms, you know, built onto the power plant, so that and th- those things can capture ninety or ninety-five percent of these problem gases before they release to the environment. And so, why wouldn't we have those? The plants that we've got were built back in the last century, before some of this air pollution science was understood properly, and it's never been forced on the power plant operators to, you know, bring this power plants up to the modern pollution standards. Okay, so it could be retro-built? Sure, it can be retro-built. That's Mm -hmm. a process that's been happening across many other countries. Mm -hmm. Old power plants having the new sort of pollution control stuff built onto them later. Mm. And so what percentage of uh, coal-fired power plants, say in Japan or China, would have them? I, I think they would all have them. Right. Um, look, I'm not so a great expert. So we all pick on China to be, you know, <laughs> yeah. the dirty, the, have fairly, yeah. you know, polluted sort I, of air, etc. Look, I'm not a great expert on international power stations, but right. I gather that anything new built in those countries would have this gear on it, yep. and it's progressively being enforced on old plants as well. Right. And do we know the impact of, for example, how would it cause diabetes? Do we understand the The, the, the mechanism? connection between air pollution and diabetes is relatively new, Right. Um, but the pathway is via a systemic inflammation. So there's a, a sort of background level of systemic inflammation is higher in people exposed to fine particle pollution, and that probably increases insulin resistance, which is the fundamental thing in type 2 diabetes. Because mm, we know that increasing people's inflammatory markers, for example, which happens with chronic Poor disease. Diet. Yep. And, and, and we know there's an anti-inflammatory smoking. effect of exercise. Right. So, so a lot of things point to low-grade systemic inflammation being part of how diabetes or metabolic syndrome comes about. Right. And, and that even comes into sort of cardiovascular disease thinking. Remember the Jupiter trial where they treated a whole lot of people with high CRP levels with a statin. CRP being a marker for a inflammation. A marker for infl- inflammation, yeah. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of evidence gathering over the years that Low-grade systemic inflammation is a kind of potent promoter of both cardiovascular disease and other chronic diseases. And low birth weight babies. And low birth weight babies. Mm. Um, The mechanism for the low birth weight effect is, again, not fully understood. Um, It may be through uh, vascular reactivity in the placenta. So there's some physiological work has been done looking at placental flow rates using coloured dopplers to measure the blood flow and showing changes in vascular resistance within the placenta in people exposed to higher levels of air pollution. So having a physiological mechanism doesn't prove there's an effect. That's based on the epidemiology. Yes. But it is reassuring to have some mechanism kind of described Mm. how how it might happen. The fascinating piece of research that I took notice of when I heard your talk was that of the Beijing Olympics. Can you tell our listeners about that? (laughs) That in 2008, as part of the conditions of hosting the Olympics in Beijing, uh, the Chinese government had to clean up the air quality. So they took pretty drastic measures. They closed down a whole group of factories, including, I think, four coal-fired power stations. They banned a lot of vehicles from the road took quite stringent measures to clean up the air quality and were, were fairly successful. They got the air quality down from about eight times Australian values to about four times Australian values, mm. so much better than it had been. And that lasted for about six weeks. So after the Games, when all the industries started up again and the air quality got worse, it was back to normal. 
then a year or two later people went back and looked at the babies born during that clean air month and compared them to the babies born in the same month of the next year and the year before and showed that there was a, a significant increase in birth weight. So the average baby was 23 grams heavier if they had that clean air month in their last one or two months of pregnancy. Mm. Yeah, it's pretty interesting that we've just had that strike by all the kids. Maybe they know more than we do and they're just prepared <laughs> to, right. to put their education on the line. All those school kids going out on strike for climate. <laughs> yeah, pretty amazing. It was really heartwarming, wasn't it? It was, actually. I think, uh, yeah, it, it's an interesting thing that the young know more than we think. So the other effects, though, that, that you've studied mainly the effects in a discrete area to make it more reliable and reproducible, etc.? I've looked at what would be the expected health burden in central New South Wales, applying the epidemiology observed in North America and Europe. In Australia, we don't have sufficient scale population to do that kind of epidemiology. So Mm. mostly, there have been some Australian studies, but but none of the really big cohorts that this is based on were Australian ones. Mm. I know that it, you talked about wind factors, etc. But, you know, for some of our listeners, they're nowhere near a coal-fired uh, power plant. Does that matter? No, it turns out that the biggest contribution of these particles into Sydney is from the Central Coast power stations. Right. So despite, you know, you might live in the centre of Sydney, the power stations that are up north of Gosford, between Gosford and Newcastle, because the there's strong summer wind patterns blowing those particles into Sydney, that's the largest contributor to the power station fraction of the Mm. Sydney air pollution. Mm. The other thing I found fascinating from your discussion was that it depended on the micron size of the particle as to the downstream or the the health effects. Yeah, that's because where a particle ends up in your respiratory system depends on how big it is. So really coarse particles, anyone who's worked in a a timber workshop with lots of sawdust Mm -hmm. will know that at the end of the day the sawdust is all stuck in their nose and they can blow it out Mm. (laughs) because they're really large particles. Mm. Um, So compared to the 0.25... Finer particles, PM10, 10 10 micron particles, Mm -hmm. they'll end up in the larger airways in the Mm -hmm. larynx and trachea and bigger Mm -hmm. bronchi. Mm -hmm. But the finest particles will travel all the way down to the bottom of the lungs to the alveoli and some of them will enter the bloodstream and have systemic effects. Mm. And then we certainly can't see them. Yeah, the finest particles, you don't see them at all. Yeah, but the larger particles, I think you mentioned, can come from people who work in the mines themselves, the actual miners. Certainly, the industrial exposures, people who are working actually, you know, quarrying rock or or blasting coal and (laughs) shoveling it around, um, they're exposed to high levels of dust. Yes. And that's mostly in that PM10 size fraction. Right. And those would be the... The, the particles more likely to be causing black lung and pneumoconiosis yep. and those coal miner diseases that we mm. thought were finished with. Mm-hmm. Um, but in fact, there's been a resurgence in recent years, both in Queensland, it's been mm-hmm. noticed, and across the US, there's lots of cases showing up now mm. of I, I people find in it fascinating. open cut mines getting pneumoconiosis. Right. So, so going back to those days of, do we understand why? Um, look, it must be that, that there lacks about dust control on, on the work mm. sites. Mm. I don't know why. No. Um, I, I think the people stopped focusing on it because they thought it was, it was finished. Done it, and dusted. It, it, was, it was a serious <laughs> problem in the days of underground mining. Yes. Um, when workers would come back from the 
pit, you know, looking looking black. Mm. And yeah, look, I think they must have lost focus on it mm. with the the open cut mining, which is a much more common thing nowadays. Mm, exactly. You're listening to Wellbeing and we're discussing the effects of air pollution, particularly that of coal-powered energy stations, on health. So Ben, I picked up on the 10 microns as getting trapped in the upper airways, I suppose because I've done work out in the northwest of New South Wales, for example, and in Central Australia at such a week, miners generally, um, various minerals, have a lot of sinusitis. It's really remarkable and... I've often wondered, yes, it's windy out there, yes, it's dusty, and the places mines tend to be, but is that mm. the whole... So it really it was interesting to me. Certainly the, the bigger particles are the ones more likely to come from mechanical processes, like, mm. you know, blasting rocks and carrying them around in, in machinery. Mm. And those particles, yeah, they're more likely to end up in the upper airways, so mm. nose, sinuses, throat kind of problems. So that would that would fit together. Mm. The larger particles, of course, will fall out of the air more quickly. So a PM10 source, like, such as a mine, will be affecting areas within a few kilometres, five or ten kilometres, but not a hundred kilometres, because mm. the larger particles will fall out of the air before travelling such long distances. As dust on um, things, mm. right. So the, the power station problem is because what comes up the chimney as gases mm. forms into particles in the atmosphere. Mm. That takes some time, mm. and in that time it's travelled long distances. Mm. And are there other aspects of that air that are not good for our health besides the small particles? There are health effects from the direct gas exposure. So, for instance, Musselbrook in the Upper Hunter, that's the only place in Australia that breaches the WHO standards for sulphur dioxide and that's a very potent respiratory irritant so people prone to asthma will get you know tight-chested and wheezy from so2 exposure and that's very dependent on the wind directions so you can when you look at the records for musselbrook you can tell when the wind's blowing from the east you know from the power station towards the town mm. that's when you get these high spikes of so2 in musselbrook which is just you know about 10 kilometers away mm. They also describe problems with their tin roofs and things and their fences, yep. corrosion, yep. you know, yep. oxidation. So that I've same oxidative stress. I've heard there's a special heavy-duty brand of fencing wire you can to use up yeah. in Musselbrook, yeah. <laughs> which resists the SO2 coming yeah. out. So, <laughs> so I guess it doesn't take... I mean, we presume that we're not the same, but in fact we are. We're, a, we're actually probably more vulnerable as a living system, although we can adapt, but... There's only yeah. so much you can adapt to. Well, that, that was the, the first story about SO2 that got popular attention was the acid rain problem. Mm. And that was in the northeast of the US where they were burning very large amounts of coal and it was all much higher sulphur coal than what we have here. Mm. And that was, yeah, the sulphur dioxide being rained out of the air, coming down as sulfuric acid and killing all the vegetation. Mm. So I guess that 
is where this kind of sulfur capture technology, you know, the modern pollution control technology was developed for that, <laughs> that context. It didn't go on Musselbrook. Yeah, but they didn't, they didn't introduce it to Australia. Australia's mm. coal is lower sulfur than most overseas coal, okay. which is okay. great. Yep. But they burn it in such enormous quantities mm. that it still adds up to a large amount of sulfur dioxide going up the chimney. Yeah. yeah, right. And, of course, people are going to ask you about the new technologies in the smart coal. Uh, what do you... Smart coal? I've never heard of that one. <laughs> I suppose there's smart power stations that burn the, coal The clean coal idea and, and the high efficiency ones, yep. There is, look, I'm not an engineer, but I gather that if you increase the temperature of the steam up by another 100 degrees, the power station does get a little bit more efficient. But it's only about 14% extra efficiency. So if we thought that was going to solve the climate change problem, you know, 86% of the problem is still there. So it's not a big enough difference to really solve any climate problem. And I gather that at these extra high temperatures steam, a lot of components in the power station have to be built out of very fancy materials. So special steels and special materials that will withstand the high temperatures. And those are very, very expensive. So, so a complete while, rebuild. Well, yeah, it can be done. You know, the ultra supercritical plants have been built, mm. but I understand that they're very expensive to make mm. and have only a small efficiency gain. Mm. So, yeah, that's not... And, and then they make the same pollution. You know, what goes up the stack is not necessarily different just because the burner and the turbine run at a higher temperature. So, in fact, it's probably not going to be a solution. The Minerals Council was spruiking a design for a high efficiency, low emissions power plant for the hunter mm-hmm. and they put out a big kind of 400 page design document about it i had a look through there and they had included electrostatic precipitators only which are an old-fashioned and not very effective particle capture system and they'd put on none of the so2 and nox capture technologies so it was cheap and dirty mm. well i guess the turbine and furnace end of it was so expensive they didn't want to spend any money on pollution controls so that proposal, I don't think it's going to go anywhere because it's uneconomic. But, yes. But if they built it as designed by that report that came out, it would have been much more polluting even than the current power stations. Mm, and that's probably why I haven't heard too much more from the government about, I thought it was called smart coal, but it's not. <laughs> it's actually clean coal. They abbreviated H-E-L-E, high efficiency, low emissions, but... Like I was saying, it's only a very slightly large, higher efficiency and very slightly lower emissions. Mm, And, of course, these would have to be built by private companies who are now fast realising that there's no money in coal, which is a whole reason for not having more coal. But we still send a fair bit of our coal overseas. Sure. Most of what's dug up in the Hunter Valley Mm -hmm. and in Australia anywhere is Mm -hmm. sent overseas and burnt elsewhere. Mm. That market i gather is drying up but it's still going for now Mm. but yeah i think it's quite shameful for australia to be digging the stuff up faster and faster and exporting it to countries where it's causing not only climate change but also direct health impacts on people who can least afford it probably from from very poor air quality Mm. so i think the places with the worst air quality in the world are now new delhi and some of those indian cities Mm -hmm. and certainly you know power stations that if they don't have the modern pollution control technology on them, are certainly part of that problem, causing very large numbers of of deaths and heart attacks and all those health problems Mm. right across Asia. So it's also that burden, if you like, that we should be aware of and as voters making a decision on. 
Yeah, certainly. The, the scale of the health burden from coal-fired power station in other countries is enormous. Mm. And I think, yeah, if we're concerned about health across the world, that also should come into our thinking. Mm. And, our, and our voting rights, exactly. You're listening to Wellbeing and we're discussing the effects of air pollution on our health with Dr Ben Ewald. It's been a really fascinating discussion. Are there other things that you'd like to add? Well, I suppose I was thinking on the way over about what's the message that an individual can do to protect themselves from these health problems. Mm. So I think anybody, certainly the last two months of pregnancy are a vulnerable time to air pollution. So anybody who was thinking of going to countries with really filthy air pollution, I'd suggest that's not a good idea in late pregnancy. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if someone was going to be travelling to India or China or or some of the Middle East where the air is really poor quality, um, yeah, I'd say that's not a good idea in the third trimester of pregnancy because that's the time at which the baby's growth is most vulnerable to Mm. air pollution effects. So that's a really good piece of advice. Are there masks that, you know, if you have to go to these places, are there specific masks for that size of particle? There are particle masks that can protect you. You'd have to wear it the whole time while you're outdoors. Mm. Uh, Indoor air pollution is a whole other story, but, you know, if a house is sort of relatively well sealed, um, that can reduce indoor pollution levels. And there are quite a lot of people in these countries with really bad air do have their own in-house air filtration gadgets that Mm. can work. Mm. So, yeah, there are some things one can do to protect oneself, but, yeah, it means wearing a mask while outdoors, which is quite an undertaking. Mm, Exactly. One of the things, though, that I noticed was you talk about stack emissions, etc., but one of the big problems we've had here in Newcastle has been the coal dust from the carriages. Now, we finally got them covered, I believe. No, still not. Okay. No, no, no the car- <laughs> Tell us about the, that. The coal trains are still rumbling up and down the Hunter Valley line without lids on them. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so coal dust does blow off the top of those wagons and in hot, dry weather, it's also blowing off the coal dumps at, mm. at the loaders mm. and blowing away you know, from the conveyor belts while ships are being loaded. Mm. So that is a contributor to the air pollution, certainly in Newcastle and up and down the Hunter Valley. Um, It's worst in hot, dry weather Mm. because the the coal is carried wet and so less is blowing off the top if it's able to be kept damp. Mm -hmm. So, But if it's come a long way and it's summer, well, by the time it gets here, it's it's dried out and blowing off the top of the wagons. Mm. You can see, looking at the rail tracks that... The ground around the rail tracks is often black with coal. Mm. So a lot of that is falling off. Um, Being the larger PM10 fractions, I think it's fairly local. So it's the suburbs right close to the coal loaders and to the railway tracks that are affected. And it's probably not blowing all across town. Mm -hmm. Um, Since it's, you know, being the larger particles, it does fall out of the air more quickly. Mm. But yeah, certainly I think that'll be a a big benefit for those suburbs close to the, the Carrington coal loader. When that eventually shuts and coal operations are all moved across to Kurigang on the other side of the river, that'll be a benefit for those suburbs. Mm, yeah. Are there other areas that we need to look at if we're going to continue to generate electricity this way? Um, look, I, I think that the writing's on the wall for coal-fired electricity in the big picture because mm. of climate concerns and because it's cheaper to get your power from solar panels and wind farms these days. Yeah. Um, but... 
the some of the plants will run for another 20 years mm. and during those 20 years you know they should be required to install the the modern pollution control gear mm. i think the best analogy is 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 motor cars that every mm. car on the road has fancy gear in its tailpipe system in its exhaust system with a catalytic converter and a particle filter and all that stuff isn't cheap it adds about a thousand dollars to the price of a new car and that's accepted by everybody that that modern cars you know we don't drive the cars that were being made back in the 1970s which were quite highly polluting and modern cars are a lot cleaner than that because of this new technology on them so if it's good enough for cars why isn't it good enough for power stations why isn't it good enough for all of us? Why should, yeah, why should the individual have to pay and the large corporates don't, basically, mm. yet mm. again? <laughs> well, it's been a really uh, fascinating discussion. Thank you very much for your time and for the years of research, really, that's gone into this very concise study. Thank Thanks, you, Ben. You've been listening to Wellbeing. I'm Dr Virginia Reid. Thank you very much to Dr Ben Ewald for all the work that he's done on air pollution, coal-powered fire plants and their effects on our health. All of us here at Wellbeing would like to say we wish you well.